Good morning. As this is the fifth Sunday of the month, the elders have set aside this Sunday to be focused around the Lord's Supper, the whole service. And so, consequently, I'll be speaking about uh, the Lord's Supper itself. Often we'll do a talk about Jesus, but as I was looking at my own life, uh, I started to realize that there was something really important that I did not understand. And uh, that is, you know, with some sort of basic math, like the Lord's Supper is pretty important. Like if you look at the way that, the, the reason that people assembled in the first century, it seems to be that if this wasn't the sole reason, it was at least uh, like a major factor for the fact that they were meeting together to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And I would consider this section of my week to be maybe the most important part of my week. So if, it, if it's not the most important thing, it's at least very, very important. And I started to think about the Lord's Supper, and I was like, I don't understand why that is. Like, I, I get that it's significant, but... I want to understand more deeply, why is this so important? Why do we take it every week? And like, what am I supposed to know? And so I did some digging in the Gospels and also in Paul's writing, specifically 1 Corinthians, to try and get a grasp on what makes the Lord's Supper so important. And I came to this conclusion, summarized nicely in one succinct sentence, it reminds us to live like Jesus. And uh, this is not just a simple explanation. It's also a mnemonic because the three points of my sermon will be that it reminds us to live like Jesus. It reminds us to live like Jesus and it reminds us to live like Jesus. So three parts to this. The first is the us. It reminds us to live like Jesus. The Lord's Supper is about unity. One of the major factors is unity. Paul uh, in talking about the church, the body of Christ, not to be confused with the body of Christ that we're partaking of here, uh, but in 1 Corinthians 12 and in other places, he'll talk about the body of Christ as being composed of many members. Uh, some of them are uh, hands, some of them eyes, some of them feet. You've got Jews, Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, like lots of different kinds of people. Lots of people with different talents and lots of people with different perspectives on life. Uh, and we understand that as we look around. You know, we've got people here who are teachers, people who are accountants, business people, lots of different people, even from different countries, all these different backgrounds, and we come together. Uh, and there are lots of things in the world that may try and divide us. Many things that in the other 167 hours of the week that we may have different opinions on things that may drive us apart. But there is one really significant thing that we all have in common, and that is Jesus. And if you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, there's a passage here in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll read verses 16 and 17. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What Paul is saying here is that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood of Christ, 
that we are, in a way, participating uh, with Jesus in those things. We are drawing near to Jesus. We are hitching our wagon to him. It, different metaphors, but we are, we are partaking of these emblems which draw us nearer to Jesus and remind us of the commitment we have made. And if I have committed my life to the single focus of following Jesus, and you have also committed your life to the single focus of following Jesus, then what could possibly divide us? Like, true, there are things in this world that may seem significant, but when we are here, when we come to this period of our worship and we think about what we have pledged ourselves to, then those little quibbles that we have, the problems, the differences of opinions, they don't seem all that important. And it's really hard to come before the cross of the Lord who died for us and bring with us some baggage of pride or some baggage of quarrels that we have with our brothers when we have this most significant thing in common. And so uh, it's simple, but it's powerful that this Lord's Supper reminds us every week that we have something in common. And if we're trying to act as a church, trying to accomplish God's will on earth, then we've got to be on the same page. And so when we are reminded each week of the unity that we share, that makes us so much more effective in the other hours of the week because we are reminded that we're all here working together. So the first point, quite simply, it reminds us to live like Jesus. It reminds us of our unity. But second, it reminds us to live like Jesus. If you'll turn over to Matthew 26, there is a significant emphasis in the Lord's Supper on life. And this is not something I had uh, taken a lot of notice before, uh, at least not fully. But it's pretty clear, and I think it manifests itself in three, maybe even four ways. In Matthew 26, uh, verse 28... Jesus, as he is distributing the Lord's Supper, he's explaining the different emblems. And he says in verse 28 of Matthew 26, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We focus probably most primarily in our Lord's Supper talks about this aspect of the Lord's Supper. That Jesus gave us forgiveness of sins, his blood, his death gives us life. And rightly, should we focus on that? I mean, if we're going to sum it up, like, there is really, that's the bedrock right there. None of this would work if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for the forgiveness of sins, because otherwise we would be dead in our sins with no way to get out of it. But Jesus came, and by his death, we have life, and there is tremendous power to that. But there are other aspects of eternal life present in the Lord's Supper that are important to talk about. In fact, the next verse there, verse 29, tells us, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. So this verse, kind of tied to the previous part about life, explains that Jesus is going to have to go away from his people. There is going to be a separation. And John tells us that this separation allows for the Holy Spirit to come 
and uh, be among God's people in the interim time until Jesus uh, is with us in the new kingdom in heaven. And so we have eternal life coming from the spirit, but eternal life that we have to look forward to. If we are not going to eat it and drink it with Jesus until we, we eat it new in the Father's kingdom, there is a hope of a Father's kingdom, a hope of heaven. And this is present in the prophets of the Old Testament and in the revelation of John in the New Testament, that we are awaiting a messianic banquet, a consummation of all times, a uh, marriage feast of the Lamb, whatever you want to call it, uh, one day we are going to be in heaven. We're going to be with God. Where We've been waiting so long for that. For all of this time, we've been here on earth and we've been separated from God. He's with us in some ways, but never perfectly like we will be with him in eternity. And we are awaiting that and hoping for that. And so when we come and partake of these emblems and are reminded of the life that Jesus gave us, we are not just reminded of what Jesus did for us in the past, but what we hope for in the future when we will be with God in heaven, thinking on eternal life. But there's a third dynamic to this element of eternal life that is worth mentioning. And this one comes from John 6, which I will admit up front is not a Lord's Supper text, but it also kind of is. I'll explain it in a moment. John 6 is, of course, the famous uh, bread of life discourse. In John 6, we'll read verses 53 uh, through 58. Jesus tells them, uh, so Jesus said to them in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the, fa- uh, not like the, bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So in this, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. He says, whoever eats me will live Now, uh, in this is a sort of shocking thing to say. Like, Jesus, kind of out of the blue, is like, yeah, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And there are a lot of people in the audience that are kind of turned off by that image, and uh, they leave him. But it's the people that don't, his uh, closest apostles, uh, the people that get it. People who are all in, people who have fully committed themselves to Jesus, They understand, maybe not fully, but in some ways, what this is talking about. That uh, to be a follower of Jesus, to be committed to him totally, it's going to be sort of strange, but it's a huge commitment. And when we take that leap, when we go all in believing uh, in Jesus, that's how we get eternal life. Uh, And when that happens, uh, 
It says in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There is this uh, abiding, circular abiding that goes on. So what is this? It's very metaphorical. But I'm, I'm saying this picture of drinking the, fle- drinking the blood and eating the flesh is a metaphor for fully committing to God. And very similarly, uh, there is, as we talked about, th- this is a participation in the death of Christ, a participation in Christ. And so two images that are both blood and uh, bread, both of them separate metaphors, but for the same sort of thing, they're very similar. Um, and when we partake, when we uh, eat the flesh of Jesus, as this metaphor says, we gain eternal life. But John has a very special meaning for eternal life that he explains here in John uh, 17, verse 3. Uh, this is from the high, pri- high priestly prayer. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what this says is that eternal life is not just something that we have waiting for us, but it is something that we have presently. This is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ. And with similar sorts of pictures of uh, abiding in and abiding, circular abiding, we have in uh, like the book of 1 John, talks about this as an aspect of love. And so there is a sense in which we have eternal life now. What does that mean? I, I think... To, I could best describe it as, as this. When we know God truly, there is something about life. Uh, and Jacob touched on it earlier in the, in the previous talk, but I think there's, there's more to it. There's something about life that opens up to us. Where before we were living for ourselves, where before we were living with our desires running us, when we know God, when we know his word, when we know Jesus, the world opens up for us. There are possibilities that we didn't have before, and we have freedom from sin that we didn't have before. We have a purpose in life that we didn't have before. And there were all of these aspects of life that we have because we know God. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of that life that we live presently, uh, where we have Uh, knowledge and sight to see the world the way that God intended us to see it, the ability to live the way that God intended life to be lived. And so because we know God, we can live life differently than the world. And we are reminded of that incredible gift every week as we partake of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper teaches us to live like Jesus. It reminds us of the eternal life that we have waiting for us, the eternal life, the life we have through the blood of Christ, and the life that we have to live presently and as we live in a relationship knowing God. But there's one more thing, uh, the whole thrust of this sentence. It reminds us to live like Jesus. It reminds us to have a Christ-like character. Um, I've been to one hockey game in my life. Uh, it was last year, and uh, Leah and I went to go see the Lightning uh, in Tampa Bay play the Oilers, the Edmonton Oilers. 
So Leah and I showed up, never been to a hockey game before. Uh, and we were like, should we wear blue? Because that's the colors of the Tampa Bay. And we were like, ah, it's like, that's a lot of work. We'll just like wear whatever. And uh, so we showed up. And uh, I was wearing a hoodie that was the colors of the opposing team. And I was like, oh, well, that's really embarrassing. Uh, so, I, of course, I had to take my hoodie off. I was cold, but it was fine. Um, the, what's funny, though, is that if, like, I went there hoping to root for the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, yeah, whenever they scored a goal, like, I was, I was up on my feet. I was cheering. I was excited. But if someone had come to me and they'd look me up and down, there's no way they would have known that I was trying to be a Lightning fan. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is kind of similar to that. He says, you're claiming to be a Christian. You're claiming that what you're doing is for the Lord. But I can see from looking at you that that is not what you're about. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to describe the way that they are profaning the Lord's Supper. And he'll say in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, is it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. So Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And I don't think that what he's saying is, you know, you're eating hamburgers and fries. I think what he's saying is you're attempting to eat the Lord's Supper, but it's not about the Lord, is it? It's all about you. That's what you brought to this table. And he goes on to explain that. He says, the way you're eating, uh, where one of you is going ahead, one is drunk and the other is hungry, it betrays the fact that you're bringing to this table some virtues that are not Christ-like. There are divisions among you, probably economic divisions, where the rich were uh, feasting and they were leaving the poor out. Uh, and that's just, that's not what we're about. And uh, Paul calls them on that. He says, you're eating the Lord's Supper. You're claiming it's the Lord's Supper. You're claiming to live like Christians. But is that how Christ lived? Is that the values? Are those the values that Christ had? No, not at all. How are you supposed to take this? We're told in verses 28 and 29, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He says, if you are eating this Lord's Supper and you're not thinking about your brothers, like if you're not being, uh, if you're being selfish in the way that you're eating, not discerning the body of Christ, then you're, you're eating it all for yourself. This is not about anyone else. And you're not examining yourself. When you come and you look at the perfect standard of the way you're supposed to live your life, can you honestly come before Jesus and bring all this uh, quarreling, all of these fighting and divisions and uh, pride? No, not at all, because that's not what Jesus is about. I mean, we think about the Christ that we serve. And some of the passages that we talk about uh, in light of the Lord's Supper. Think about, for example, uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. You know, that he was despised and rejected and afflicted and he bore uh, the, the scars for our sins. Is that the kind of person who's prideful and arrogant and insists on his own way? The kind of person that's like, I'm better than you? No, not at all. You think about uh, Jesus as he stood before Herod and Pilate 
and how uh, in many of us, I think, in that circumstances would have been really you know, trying for all that we're worth to be powerful and push our influence. What's Jesus doing? He is silent. And that is truly profound because this, uh, the, there's something very human about being, uh, trying to be powerful, trying to exert our influence, trying to be big when we get scared. But Jesus is not about that. He was silent and meek. And finally, uh, Philippians 2, the, an excellent uh, passage to, about Jesus and his state of mind. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul will say, um, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and having been and being found in human form. He humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king of the world came down and the way he lived was completely subservient to God And if that's the way that God, if that's the way Jesus lived, God among us, then when we come to the table, we can't bring the garbage of our sinful lives and our uh, minds that are impure. Like we're coming before the Lord and we got to leave that behind. We can't continue to live in sin as we come week to week before God. And think about the sacrifice he gave. Think about the death that he gave to give us life. We've got to change our character. And I think that each week, as we come and reflect on who Jesus was, we are reminded of who we are supposed to be. We are reminded that we are supposed to live like Jesus, to have that Christ-like character. And so... As we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper here in a moment, consider these. And of course, there are other aspects. Uh, you know, as Jacob and I were talking about this, and you know, what are we supposed to think about during the Lord's Supper? It's whatever gets you to that point where you are looking at Jesus, where you are considering the kind of life he lived and saying, that's the kind of life I want to live. When you are considering the sacrifices that he gave uh, and the life and the new possibilities that we have because of his selfless sacrifice. When you are considering that we all, from all of our different backgrounds, we come together, we have this most important thing. The primary objective of our life is all the same. And as we come together and consider Jesus who died and the life that we should live and the unity that we share, let that impact the way that we live our lives uh, through the rest of our week and our lives. So uh, if the men who are uh, supposed to lead the table will come forward, we'll do that now. Uh, So to give a a few thoughts before I offer an invitation, I've been thinking about significance lately, significance of my own actions, and I was trying to think of an adequate metaphor to describe this, and I thought about a Rube Goldberg. 
uh, which is a long combination of things, a chain reaction of simple machines that leads to an end. So for example, uh, I've been thinking, well, before I get to my picture, I've been thinking about the fact that in the morning, I don't want to get out of bed to turn the light on. So I thought, you know, I could just create a complex mechanism to do that for me. So when the alarm clock goes off, it goes down a wedge, which knocks over some dominoes, which goes into a pulley, which pulls up some cheese, which a mouse would then go toward the cheese, knocking this marble, which is on a piece of paper, down a track to hit a car that would push a string to pull out a thing so that a mento falls into a Diet Coke, which blows up a balloon, which knocks over some books onto a lever, which turns on a light. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, that's really complicated. Like, why would I do that when I could just, like, get out of bed and turn the light on? Like, it's just less work if I do that. <laughs> so in line with that metaphor comes a question. Why does God use people? Like, think about this for a moment. Uh, I'm thinking about the book of Esther. So the end result of the book of Esther is that the Jews are saved from the bad guys that want to kill them. And like a bunch of other places in scripture, God could just send an angel and just zap all the people dead or whatever. But he doesn't do that. Instead, God, by chance it seems, gets this random Jewish girl to be the queen of Persia. And then she uh, becomes aware of the plot through some convoluted schemes, and then she goes to talk to the king, also through some rather convoluted schemes, to where the Jews are able to fight back and beat the Persians. Like, the end result is, could have been the same either way. But for some reason, God decided to use people to accomplish his will, instead of just doing it himself. And... You know, there are plenty of other examples of this. You think of like Adam, for example. God could have taken care of the garden, but he said, Adam, I want you to do this. Or you think about like the Babylonians, for example. God could have punished his people himself, but he chose to use the Babylonians to do it. The Bible is full of examples. But the, the awareness of the answer to this comes from, I think, recognizing that the end goal of God's use of people isn't necessarily to accomplish the thing. Sure, God could do it either way. He could do it himself or he could use his people to accomplish his will. So it's not that God using people changes the outcome. It is that God using people is its own outcome. Because when God uses his people to accomplish things, it shows off two things about God. One, it shows his power, and two, it shows us that when, God, when we have shared experiences, it brings us closer together. So I'll start with the first one, uh, that God's use of people shows his power, shows the elegance of God's planning. Uh, you think about Paul, for example. Uh, Paul says, look, God picked me. This is he's talking about in, in 1 Timothy. He says, God chose me not because I was some incredible person. In fact, I was the chief of sinners. God chose me, Paul, specifically because I was like the worst possible choice. And God was saying, if I can do it with Paul, I can do it with anybody. 
And God basically says the same thing to Israel in Deuteronomy 9. He says, I'm picking you not because you're the best nation. In fact, let me just dialogue for you a few reasons why you're terrible. Um, I'm picking you because if I can do it with you, I can do it with anybody. That God uses people in his schemes, uh, in his plans, to accomplish his goal because God wants, in some way, to show his glory. But I think there's another aspect to this, and that is that shared experience brings intimacy. Uh, You look at the way that God describes Israel. He says, I will be a father to you, and you will be a son to me. And that this sort of relationship could not happen unless um, Israel was involved with God, connected in God's plans. And so this question, why does God use people, it is not because using people makes the job happen uh, maybe differently than God would have done it, but it is that using people uh, brings people close to God. It shows his glory. And so as we try and apply this to our lives, I I like to think of it in terms of maybe evangelism. Uh, I think a lot of times we think, you know, if if I don't go talk to that person, you know, it's it's never going to happen or something. Uh, And maybe that is the case, but I think probably closer to scripture is not that our involvement in the plans of God makes things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. I mean, Mordecai tells Esther as much. He says, look, if you don't rise up, there will be deliverance for the Jews. It's just not going to come from you. Uh, But what we do get to see is that when we are a part of God's plans, that is a benefit on its own. Uh, Turn over to Acts chapter 5. At the end of Acts 5, Uh, In verse 41, we see Peter and John have just uh, gone through a pretty difficult ordeal. But when they get done after they've been beaten, uh, in verse 40, uh, it says, When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name that it is a privilege to be involved in the plans of God. Because God didn't have to do it that way. God could have chosen any number of ways, ways that would have gotten his goals accomplished much more directly. But he chose to use people. And it is a gift to get to be involved in God's plans. And so let us think about, as we go into the world, trying to serve God, trying to do what he wants us to do, Let us think less of ourselves, uh, that we add value to God's plan on our own, but rather that God gives us value by letting us be a part of his plans. We're going to sing a song here in a moment, and if we can help you in any way to encourage you to live like you ought to, to pray with you, or if you've never been baptized, we would love to help you with that. If you have any need, please come as we stand and sing.